If you've ever been to the doctor and heard the words, you have cancer. You know that that is anything but a positive experience. You know that that is anything but good news. And yet at the same time, though we don't think about it very often, there's something that is good about them telling you you have cancer, and that is that they're being honest, that they're being truthful, that they're actually telling you what is real so that there might be hope in seeking a solution. There might be a treatment or something that they might be able to do like surgery. And that's the positive side. Just stop and think. If you had a particular kind of cancer and you went to go see your doctor, which is true for some in this room, and your doctor were to tell you, everything looks great. You have a clean bill of health. Why don't you come back and see me in 12 months? While you'd feel good, rest of your day would probably go quite well, the doctor would have been deceiving you, would have been lying to you, and ultimately it would not be good for you. It would be better to find out the truth. It would be more loving, more kind, more sincere to find out what is actually true. Well, because I don't want to practice spiritual malpractice, I stand before you this morning, I trust out of love and sincerity, and I say... Spiritually speaking, you have cancer. You have a problem, and the problem is called sin. And it will lead to something far worse than your, than your physical illness or your physical death. It's bad news. It couldn't be worse news for you as a member of the human race. But I want you to know because if you know what you have, there is possibility, there's opportunity to seek a solution which is filled with hope. Well, I use this analogy this morning by way of introduction with great confidence because it's the same analogy that Jesus uses. If you just listen to me quoting Jesus, he used the exact same thing when he was here on earth. Listen to what he says. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was talking to religious people who thought they were fine on their own or based upon what they had done. They didn't see themselves as spiritually sick or spiritually dead even. And so he makes the point clearly so we can all understand by way of analogy, but he makes it rather bluntly. I came for people who see they have a problem. They have a sin problem. So they can see me as the great physician, if you will, providing the cure, the solution. It's a profound and simple and wonderful illustration. Jesus came for us who will acknowledge what He knows to be true and others know to be true, that we're sinners. And we need to be rescued from our sin. 
It's the most kind and gracious thing any of us can believe or do, and that is to listen to Jesus who says, I came for the sick. I came for the unrighteous, which is true of all of us. We need to admit that, though. So we're going to talk about sin this morning, not because I had a rough night's sleep, not because it's been a tough week, not because I have an axe to grind and want you to feel bad about yourself. We're going to talk about sin this morning because, for a lot of reasons actually, but first and foremost because we need to realize that we do have this problem or we will never see Christ as glorious, we will never see Him as great, we really will never function like Christians are supposed to, and we'll go the rest of our lives thinking everything is just fine. Everything's going to be okay. And you know what? I've got to tell you, apart from radical surgery, surgery of the heart, it's not going to be okay. This morning we're going to look at a number of lies about sin. Six lies about sin that undermine the gospel. Six lies about sin that undermine the gospel. We're not going to be in our regular study of Romans this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at this. Uh, I probably spent most of my time this last week, if I wasn't speaking about these issues, I was preparing to speak about these issues um, at a camp. And so uh, when my week is filled with these things and the providence of God, there's nothing I would rather talk about. And there's nothing I would rather talk about in one sense to uh, you as church members of Omaha Bible Church because this has so much to do with our ministry that we share in. There's nothing I would rather talk about to you if you're a visitor or if you've been here for a long time and you're not a Christian. We need to make sure we understand Christianity and we cannot understand Christianity if we do not understand the seriousness of sin. And yet there are lies all around. Some of them are in our own heads that will ultimately cause us to not see Christianity for what Jesus Christ intended it to be. It will rob Christians of their worship It will rob unbelievers of their hope. It will rob Christianity of Christ. And so in that sense, and for all those reasons, I can't wait to talk about sin today. I am just itching to talk to you about sin. Why? Because ultimately, and I promise it will end on a positive note, because I am just itching to talk about how powerful and how great and how majestic and how loving and how wonderful Jesus Christ is. But we don't understand the hope of good news unless we understand the devastation of bad news. Fair enough? All right. Lie number one. Lie number one that too many Christians believe that undermines the gospel is that it shouldn't be talked about. Lie number one about sin is, shh, don't talk about sin. I don't know, maybe some of you are already even thinking, what are you doing? Do you realize you've already said sin a whole bunch of times and you've even kind of described it? You've even called us sinners. You've even pointed your finger a couple of times, kind of in my vicinity. I didn't come here for that. I come to church to feel good about myself. Well, I'm trying to practice good spiritual medicine and just be honest. The big lie we believe is that we shouldn't talk about sin. Well, the problem with that lie that we shouldn't talk about sin is it doesn't make any sense, therefore, of Christianity. 
We don't talk about sin, then it just doesn't make any sense. Because when you start in Genesis, you don't make it very far to, to find out it's a lot to do with sin. And, and then you keep reading, and it's sin, 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 sin. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and it's still talking about sin, even though it's great because Christ is the great Redeemer, and Christ is the great Restorer. But you know what? He redeems us from what? He redeems us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from the power and penalty of sin. It makes so much, the Bible is, of Christ. Christianity, true Christianity, makes so much of Christ because we're such sinners. And so we see Him as great because we understand what our problem is. It is ridiculous. I'll use that word. Kind of a fighting word, I realize. Kind of a, a, a hardcore word. It is ridiculous for us to go, shh, don't talk about sin. If we're Christians... It's absolutely ridiculous. I just want you to go to one passage on this particular point with me, if you would. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1. And literally, I came up with it off the top of my head. We could go to Genesis 3. We could go to Revelation 21. We could go to anything in between. But this is the one that came to my mind as I was thinking about these things. But it could be one of a thousand verses. Christianity is built upon... The reality of sin, because it's all about us being rescued from what we deserve, which is sin and its penalty. So we need to make sure that we're not shushing about sin, or it doesn't really make any sense. I don't know, the last time I checked, you know, the founder of our movement, Christ, (laughs) came here for the purpose of dealing with our sin. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement. Hey, Paul is saying to, the, to Timothy, this is something you can bank on. This is something you can preach till you're blue in the face. You can know that this is true. If anything is true, this is true. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And if I could just interject for a second, this is not one of those things the Bible says uh, that, that are hard to understand. The Bible admits that. There are some things that are hard to understand. There are some things, you know what, that are, that are just kind of tough to get your mind around. And, and maybe some things in the Bible are clearer than other things. He's saying, this isn't one of those. There should be no controversy in all of Christendom about what I'm about to tell you. I mean, we might argue over the timing of the rapture, but this is in a whole other category. No debating, no controversy. What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's, that's a pretty clear purpose statement. Why did Jesus come? Well, He came to show us the way. Well, that's true on one level, but that's not fundamental to Christianity. I mean, that's not the issue. Jesus came uh, to, to, to influence our culture. Well, that's true, but that, that's not... Primary purpose, primary purpose, and you can go to 1 Timothy, you can go to 2 Timothy, you can go to Romans, you can go to the, wherever you want to go. Why did he come here? He came here to save sinners. He came here to deal with our problem. He came here to deal with our offense against God. We have violated God's perfect standards. We've committed cosmic treason. We have rebelled against him. Jesus came here, why? To save us. To save 
sinners. It is fundamental. It is wrapped up at the very heart and core of Christianity. And when we as a church stop talking about sin or we redefine sin and make it something other than it is, guess what? We are on a totally different page than Jesus Christ. Logically, we should stop calling ourselves Christian. We should stop calling this, you know, a church. We talk about sin because that's at the fundamental level of why Christ came. It's basic. And when we lose sight of that, we're losing sight of everything. You travel around the world, you go to Europe and you go to these other places and you see these magnificent church buildings and they're amazing and all of this architecture and then you find out, you know, on a Sunday morning, 30 people come. Maybe. Well, there are lots of different reasons on lots of different levels, but one reason is when the church stops talking about sin, you know what? Really, the church has uh, kind of disqualified itself to ultimately and longstandingly, if you will, to be relevant. What do we have to say? What, what are we here for? There are other groups that do the other stuff better than we do it. We are about one thing, ultimately, helping people understand that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners through His dying for them on a cross. David Wells, in his helpful chapter in this book called Losing Our Virtue, uh, was very blunt about this. And since I'm so cautious and careful not to be blunt, I want to quote someone else who is blunt about this, because I wouldn't want to be controversial and talk about sin, so I'll let him do it. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. (laughs) Listen to this. The church must find courage to recover both the language and understanding of sin. It must re-inhabit the universe of meaning given in Scripture. It must recover its enmity toward fallen human nature and fallen culture. Here's what I really wanted to mention. And stop mumbling on these subjects. It must care more about truth than success. More about faithfulness than being culturally at home. I love the mumbling part. And another section, I thought this was helpful as well. First hour didn't get this, so you guys, you know, get the full price admission kind of deal. Listen to this. Can the church view people as consumers without inevitably forgetting that they are sinners? Can the church promote the gospel as a product and not forget that those who buy it must repent? Can the church market itself and not forget that it does not belong to its, it it itself does not belong to Christ? Can the church pursue success in the marketplace and not lose its biblical faithfulness? I like those kinds of questions. They're good questions for us as a local church to ask. They're good questions for evangelicalism to ask. We need to ask these questions of ourselves. If it's all about marketing a product and trying to please people, what about repentance? And why is it that we seem to work so hard? When Jesus says, when it says about Jesus... He came into the world to save sinners, and what do we do? We try to get creative and do all we can to mumble about sin. It doesn't make any sense. Stop believing that lie. We need to stop believing that lie. We just need to know that it's what's true and it's what makes Christ great. It's what makes Him glorious. It's what makes Him grand. 
Let's move on to a second lie about God that we don't want to believe, excuse me, not about God, but about sin, that will cause us to believe other lies about God. That certainly would be true. Number two, there are no real consequences. There are no real consequences for sin. Let me dramatize this a little bit. It's late night TV here, bad acting. Names have been changed to protect the guilty. Thinking goes like this. Okay, I know I'm a sinner. But you know, God is the universal Father. God is the universal Father of everyone. And you know what? I heard one time that God is love, God is gracious. God is merciful. God is, a, God is a forgiving God. You know what? There's truth to each one of those statements. But it's not altogether true. And for you or for me to conclude that I can sin and you know what? It's not really going to matter because God is love and God is grace. is like you thinking believing regardless of the facts that you don't have cancer even though you do let's look at a text of scripture and it's romans romans chapter 5 romans chapter 5 tells us that it actually is bad there actually is a problem and there's actually going to be consequences and we need to know this if this weren't true if there really aren't any consequences then 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 christianity doesn't make sense it certainly doesn't inspire worship. It certainly doesn't inspire devotion to Christ. If there's no real consequence, look at Romans chapter 5. And by the way, we have to do something that I wish we didn't have to do, and that's we have to assume uh, that we haven't gotten to the good part yet. Okay, We're going to see some great things in here that are, that are true about us as believers, if we're believers. But just for this exercise, let's see that there are consequences if that doesn't happen. Go ahead and read with me, if you would, in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, I underline that word because that's what happens as a result of sin in your relationship to God. Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I circled that as well. That's in relationship to my sin. So helpless, ungodly, spiritually, verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man. He's making the point here that's not true with us. Someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners i circled that as well that's what's happening as a result of our sin we're labeled as sinners christ died for us verse 9 much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath i circled that as well wrath of god through him and then verse 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life sinners wrath Enemies, oh, under wrath, enemies, helpless, ungodly. You know, when I read that, there's something in me, if I'm going to try to pretend like I'm just a student of our culture who uh, is here taking all of this in, perhaps even religious. You know, there's something in me that says, yeah, I know that's true, sinners, wrath, enemies. I'm just glad we're reading the Old Testament. We're reading the New Testament. Talking about who God is and who you are as a sinner. It doesn't matter which testament you're in. Under the wrath of God, enemies of God, there are consequences. There definitely are consequences. 
And we need to make sure we don't mumble about them because, quite frankly, again, if we don't realize there are consequences, then Christianity, what are we doing? Why are we here? Is there a game on? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so even though it's hard to talk about, Molly told me this past week she was here, you know, watching new people come in and visitors, vacation Bible school, and the kids are up here being taught a song, you know, about being under the wrath of God, and she was wincing, you know. There's just something in us that we just do that because we think, oh, here we go, you know. But Christianity isn't going to make sense. Christ isn't going to be great. Grace isn't really going to be grace. It doesn't make any sense at all. What we need to do is make sure we don't believe the lie that says there are no consequences, and by the way, we shouldn't even talk about it. Or before you know it, people are just going to be taking tours of this place, and there'll be 30 people here. Actually, they won't, because they won't come here to see this. (laughs) I don't know what they'll do. Half-price books will move in. If we don't stay on purpose with Christ... What's the point? It doesn't make any sense. It's not profound. It's not amazing. It's not wonderful. It's not great. Let's move on to another lie that we don't want to believe. Oh, by the way, before we move on to another one, I almost forgot there's a consequence involved. If you just turn over to Romans chapter 6, wouldn't want to leave this out. Still under consequences number 2, Romans 6.23. You know the passage well if you've been a Christian for longer than about five minutes. Romans 6.23 says the wages, so that's fair, that's what we earned, like when you go to your job, for the wages of sin is death. Now we're going to get to the good part later, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we're so excited about the latter part, but we're not excited about the latter part unless we understand the gravity of the initial phase, death. All right, let's move on to a third lie about sin that we don't want to believe. Three out of six Number three, sin is merely external. Sin is merely external. And time for me to do the little drama again. You can tell I never took acting lessons and never did drama in school. That's why I'm not very good at it. That's why I'm a preacher. But once in a while, I've got to act it out for you a little bit. Here's how we think sometimes. We think, well, okay, I guess I understand what he's saying because I, I, I will admit that I'm, I'm not a perfect person because you know I do things that are... That are less than perfect, and I don't want to admit that, but I know in my heart that I actually do things that are not perfect, and I, I, I don't obey God perfectly, and I don't love my neighbor perfectly like God says, and, and so I, I guess I can understand that externally I, I do some of these things that are not right, but here's how our thinking goes. But you know, my heart's right. My heart's in the right place. And so I guess... As I'm thinking about this, since my heart's in the right place, and you know, God knows my heart, sin's not really that big of a deal. Sin's merely something that's external. Well, dramatization is over. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Jeremiah 17. It's true, God knows your heart. And when you see what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, you might figure that you don't want God to know your heart. If you're new to the Bible, you can find Jeremiah fairly easily. You open the Bible to the middle unless you have some kind of study Bible and you have the book of Psalms, Proverbs, you work your way to the right, a couple of small books, then Isaiah, then Jeremiah. And you can go ahead and find Jeremiah 17.9. 
sin is not merely external. That's a lie. We, we don't want to believe that or we're not going to see the gospel as wonderful and glorious and amazing. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. <laughs> and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you keep reading, well, God understands it. He's the only one that knows just how bad it is. But the bad news is He knows. So this business is self-delusion when we say, you know what, I do external bad things, but I'm not really a bad person because I have a good heart and God knows my good heart. If you learned that in Sunday school, you need to go back and talk to your Sunday school teacher. God says, you know, it's no wonder they did things like kill the prophets. But Jesus was still preaching the same message, saying, you guys, you killed the prophets. They told you the truth. He he would back these statements up. Your sin is not just what you do. Your sin is who you are. To the core of your being. How about this one? It's not just that you do bad things. You are a bad person. I don't think you'll catch that on Shuler this morning. But it's true. Okay? It's not just that you do bad things and your environment is the problem. You are a bad person. That's just how it is. Read Genesis and you're going to see it. And then keep reading and you go all the way through to the end. It's what you're going to see. The heart is the problem. And I don't say that because I somehow, somehow I like to insult people. I don't think Jeremiah, Jeremiah liked to insult people. That's what God says. And again, I can't help but get to the good news as we go. You don't really see the cross as majestic and amazing and wonderful if you think your heart is good. Not in a million years. Unless somehow He was dying for you because you're so good. Which ultimately the object of worship is... Ta-da! Me! It's you. We're so good. Jesus dies for us. Who's the hero? We are. What religion is this? Not Christianity. Not in a million years. It's the religion of self, which is the whole problem. You don't need to take the time to go there. I'll just reference it. Psalm 51, verse 5. David, King David said this about himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Sin. And in sin my mother conceived me. And he was not, clearly in the context, he's talking about his sin. He's not talking about his mother having a sinful relationship. That's not the idea at all. He's saying, I am a sinner confessing his sin before God in Psalm 51. And he acknowledges this is not just the fact that he does sinful things. It is that he is a sinful person. Not just that he does bad things. He is a bad person. And you know where it started? It started at conception. He has a sin nature. And his sin nature is proven... Through his actions. This is amazing. This does horrible, horrible, horrible things for your self-esteem. And nothing could be more unbiblical than for you to think highly of yourself and see yourself as a good person. Couldn't be further from the truth. Or God is a liar. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we worship Him. That's why we will worship Him forever. Because He is good. And He was good for us. And He died for us. And He rose for us. It's all about Him. 
And He is great and gracious and loving and kind. That's why He did that for us. It's magnificent. But sin is not just external, it's internal. Where we are, who we are. A fourth lie about sin that we don't want to believe as a church, we don't want to believe it as individuals, we don't want to believe it as Christians, we don't want to believe it even if we're not Christians. Because we keep thinking we're healthy, we'll never seek a physician. Number four, sin is not universal. Sin is not universal. And I mean that in two ways. Sometimes we believe the lie that says, okay, I have some bad in me, but I've got good in me, and that over uh, overranks or outweighs the bad, and so I'm not universally sinful, I'm just kind of sinful, but I've got enough good in me that it's going to work out. Or we think of this lie another way. We think, you know what? Sin is a problem in the world. Every time I turn on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or whatever your flavor is, or see the newspaper, or talk to someone, or try to order something somewhere. You know what? I have an example around me all over the place uh, of other people not being perfect. But you know what? This, this universality of sin thing, it's a lie to think, you know, somehow sin really is, is just for those bad people I see on TV. Sin is, is the kind God is really upset with, is, is the kind that leads to murder, the kind that leads to unjust war, the kind that leads to, you know, just those big things. Well, It's not true. And I would be committing spiritual malpractice if I said it was. Romans chapter 3. If you don't go anywhere else this morning, I guess I would encourage you to go to Romans chapter 3, which, by the way, is in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. And let's see that sin is actually universal. So you might think as you see other bad things happening in other places, you know, I sure am glad I live in the heartland of America where we're generally good people. Well, it's not true. By the way, in Romans, you've got Paul unpacking this argument talking about people being sinners. And you've got people who are, quote-unquote, pagans, they're sinners. And you've got people who try to have their good outweigh their bad, they're sinners too. And then you have religious people. Surely we're in. And they're sinners too. It includes everyone. Let's go ahead and read it together and see that sin is universal on two levels. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? you got Jew and Gentile thing going back and forth, religious, not religious. Not at all, for, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that would include everyone on the planet at that point in time, there's Jews and non-Jews, are all under sin. As it is written, there is, ready for this, verse 10, none righteous, in case we're hard of hearing or having a little problem with our eyes, not even one. There is... None who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Cancel the seeker service we're having later. It's not true. It's unbiblical. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Notice the universality of terms. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And then if you don't uh, pay attention to anything else, look at the end of verse 12. There is none who does good. Having a problem with my eyes here. Let me look closer. There is not even one. 
I mean, just going out of his way, making the point. There is not even a single person on the planet who is good. No one does good, not even one. You say, well, maybe that's your translation. No, <laughs> never read a translation that it doesn't make it clear. You can go look at the Greek New Testament. The New Testament is originally written in Greek, and guess what it means by what it says? Not even one. Not even one. This is radical. This is radical. Not even one. You say, how could this be good news? And what are you doing talking about this for 45 minutes, Pastor? Well, I keep going back to the same thing. If you're a good person, why in the world did Jesus come here and suffer and die? If you're a good person, then why didn't God have your good outweigh your bad, so to speak? And why in the world would God the Father pour out His wrath on His Son? What kind of crazy God is He? He's not. He's not at all. He, he loves sinners. And so He does that on our behalf to His Son so that we can have His goodness. Because we're not good. No, not one. And the people who get excited about that and talk about it and emphasize it are Christians because they know what they've been saved from. It fuels our worship. It fuels our praise. Now, I'm not going to take the time to get into all the kind of apologetic arguments and all that kind of stuff here, but just one thing, because you'll probably deal with this if you're not already dealing with it in your own mind. People say, objection. You know, what about the good things I see around the world? What, you know, what about philanthropic acts, goodwill toward men? I see it happening around my, my, my world. I see it in my office. I, I, I have some good things that I do, and, and I'm not going around killing everybody. And what, this doesn't even make sense. Well, just know that the Bible acknowledges in other places, quite frankly, all over the place, what we might call relative good. Sure, we're not all killing each other physically all of the time. We're actually doing acts of kindness at times for each other. But it comes back to this. It's relative good. We'll go there in just a little while. We're not going to right now. But what's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus summarizes it, quoting from the Old Testament in Matthew 22. It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and outflowing from that, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's what good is. That even the acts I do for others, things we might call good things, are done out of a perfect, pure motive to love and worship God. We don't do that. It's tainted by sin. Mixed motives. Plus, when it says no one does good, no, not one, most certainly there might be relative good, but as far as pure, genuine goodness that could earn the merit and earn the favor of God, which is what Romans is talking about, it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. That's what God says. One illustration that I like to use, it's not perfect, it's not a biblical illustration, but it at least helps somewhat to the point where I would probably write it in my Bible if I didn't already have it locked in my mind. One word, pirates. Pirates. You say, what in the world does pirates have to do with anything? 
Well, it's kind of a tough illustration because given where we are in culture, in pop culture, pirates are good. <laughs> pirates of the Caribbean. It messes up my illustration, <laughs> you know, because we all love Johnny Depp and he's cool. He's not bad. He's good. Well, just for a moment, supernaturally, set aside pop culture. Everyone knows that pirates, by nature of who they are, they're pirates, are rebels, are lawbreakers. Pirates are bad. Okay? Get that in your mind. Do pirates, as they're on their pirate ship, always, all of the time, do the worst things to one another? Are they always killing? Are they always stealing? Are they always robbing? Are they always raping? No. In fact, they have their own code of ethics. They have their own law. And, they, and you know, they, they help each other. They work together. Not that they don't kill each other once in a while, but you get the idea. But all along, even as they are helping each other, covering each other's backs, whatever it might be, sacrificing for each other, all along, 24-7, they are pirates, enemies of the state. And it doesn't matter what they do, even good things are relative good because they're pirates. You could use the same illustration with gangs. Someone mentioned that to me after the first hour, and it would do the same basic idea. So it's not a perfect defense, but you have the idea of what God is talking about. No one does good, no, not one. You know what? We're all spiritual pirates. We've all committed cosmic treason against the one true God, and we've tried to do it our own way. And for us to say sin is, eh, you know what? For other people, it's not universal, is a lie. And we're self-deceived. And we keep telling ourselves, even though the doctor says, you have cancer! No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. Not a good state to be in. Let's move on to another lie, because we don't want to believe it, because it steals glory from Christ, and because it keeps us from the true solution. I think we're on number five. Is that right? All right. Number five, a fifth lie. Sin can be overcome by good works. Sin can be overcome by good works. Five out of six. Here's what I wrote in my notes after I wrote that. Sin can be overcome by good works. I wrote Romans 3, question mark. Good works? What good works? There's no such thing. Ultimately... So it's ridiculous for us to think somehow we can deal with our sin problem by trying to do the right thing that we're going to do enough good works. As long as we do enough good works to outweigh our bad works, guess what? Hello? There aren't any. They don't count. They're all bad because they're tainted by wrong motives. And I'll just go to one passage. And I'll have you turn to Isaiah 64 if you would. It's kind of the gauntlet passage when it comes to dealing with this issue. It's the intense, clear, vivid, grotesque passage. Isaiah, again, middle of your Bible. Work your way to the right from the Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah. Isaiah 64. As I was speaking this week and I was talking to Molly about different things I was talking to, I told her, I said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take him to Isaiah 64. And she said, you know, basically, nah. You know, if she was speaking in pop culture terms, she would say, shut up. <laughs> well, she didn't. But she said, you're, you're, not, you're not really going to have these people go to Isaiah 64, are you? I said, yeah. You know what? 
you really need to see Isaiah 64. And she really thinks you need to see it too, right? Honey? Ain't getting no lunch today. (laughs) Oh, just kidding. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All right, good works. Here we go. Here's what God thinks of your good works. For all of us, notice that universality again. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, yeah, quote, unquote, righteous deeds, are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. I underlined all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And if you're familiar with the Bible enough to know, you'll say, yeah, I understand why your wife said, you're not going to go there, are you? And if you have a study Bible or maybe a marginal note in the Bible that you have, filthy garments, i.e., dirty menstrual rags. Wow. If you're somehow thinking that God is going to accept you because you go to Omaha Bible Church, sometimes more than once a week, if God thinks, if you think you're going to be accepted by God because you go and help people who are in need of help, if you think somehow that you can give enough money and be philanthropic enough, if you think somehow that these things are going to please God, they not only don't please God, but you know what God thinks of your religion and your stuff? He thinks what you're trying to give Him is a filthy minstrel rag. He's insulted, in other words. It's an insult to God. He's been saying, Old Testament, New Testament, no one does good, no, not one. Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3. He's been saying from the very beginning that there's a sin problem and all along there's redemption in Him and through His grace and it's all pointing toward the cross of Christ. And then He has His Son who He says, listen to Him, this is my Son, listen to Him in whom I am well pleased. And you're trying to please God. When he says, listen to my son, I'm pleased with him. I'm not pleased with you. And you're trying to pay God with filthy rags? You're just insulting God. Instead, the right thing is to say, God, I agree with you. You know my heart, obviously. I repent of religion. I repent of trying to do relative morality to please you. I repent of it all. And I agree with you that your son is great. That your son came here and he came here not because he had to come here. He came here out of love for us. And he came here and what did he do? He obeyed the law perfectly. What did he do? He came here and you yourself from heaven said you're pleased with him. He came here and then He died on a cross and, and, and experienced your just wrath, your judgment, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because He's dying for us. And then what happened, God? You know, we, we know that your Son then rose again from the dead. And God, you know what? I agree with you and I trust in your good news, the gospel message, and I agree with your ultimate purpose statement and that is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. God, I I am one. This is gospel news. This is the good news. 
that is only good if you agree with God about who you are. Sin cannot be overcome by good works. Finally, a sixth and final. We can do this one rather quickly. Lie about God. Sin is only or limited to, and I'll need to qualify this a little bit, but sin is only or limited to breaking the Ten Commandments. Sin is only breaking or limited to breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, I suppose if we're going to be technical about it, everything is wrapped up there. But I'm using Ten Commandments in a, in a cultural sense, not necessarily in a, in a refined theological sense. Because here's the typical thinking. <sighs> Again, as long as I don't break these laws, you know, like murder, I know that's one of those Ten Commandments. And, 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 and as long as I, you know, don't somehow take a wood carving and, you know, carve it and put it in the corner and bow down to it, I think that's one of the Ten Commandments too. And as long as I don't break these standards and do any of these really bad things and, and I don't commit adultery, I think that might be on there too. Okay, that means I'm not a sinner and I'm okay. If you think of it in those terms, that's a lie. I take you again in your mind to what Jesus said the greatest commandment is that encompasses all of those as they really are, the entire law of God, everything that He would require. And that's Matthew 22. And I'd love to have you turn there. Last passage for this morning, Matthew 22, and to see that it is not the case that as long as we don't commit one of these big kind of quote-unquote Ten Commandment sins, we're okay. This is one of the biggest lies that I find people believing. What does Jesus actually say obedience to God is? What, what, what does God, how about this, what does God really expect? Verse 35 of Matthew 22, one of them, a lawyer, I made a lawyer joke first hour, but we have some here second hour, so I won't. Verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. These are religious lawyers, by the way. Verse 36, teacher, they're trying to trick him, which, of, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, and he said to them, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What I want you to see, at least for this morning, is that is God's expectation. That you are perfectly, 100%, all of the time, loving God. Which would include serving God. Which would include worshiping God. And the outflow of that is that you would love other people as you love yourself. And I stand before you this morning with all seriousness saying, I have never, ever, ever, ever done either of those for one half of one half of a second. 
Neither of you. God's standard is you love Him perfectly all of the time without flinching. It affects absolutely everything in your life exhaustively. That's what He expects. That's not good news. It's righteous. That's not good news because you, you, you know you haven't done it. If we preach that as the gospel, we of all people are to be pitied because there's no way we could possibly do it. When was the last time I loved my neighbor like that? Never. Okay, sin is so heavy. It is so weighty. What if? What if this God who is righteous and has perfect standards and calls us to do this and and He hasn't changed the rules midstream and tricked us. He's always been saying, these are my rules. This is my law. And and if if you do this, then everything will be fine in essence. And if you don't, there are going to be consequences. What if this God, what if this God, because of love and grace and mercy had a way to deal with us. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but what if he had a way to somehow uphold that standard, not compromise his justice, and for us to have hope? Well, that's the Christian gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, there's more to it. You can read Romans 3. You can read Romans 5. This whole reality of Jesus coming here and perfectly living for us. How about this? Jesus doing Matthew 22 for me. To loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbor by himself. He did that. And he came here into this world to live as a substitute to do all this for Pat Abendroth, the sinner who couldn't. And then when it's all said and done, having done that perfectly for me, then what happens? Then he goes to the cross. Then he bears the wrath of God. Remember, the wages of sin is death. He is paying the death penalty for Pat Abendroth. The wrath that I deserve, then what? Then he rises again from the dead, also considered a substitutionary work of Christ, connected to it, 1 Corinthians 15, and then freeing me from slavery to sin so I can live new, a newness of life, Romans 6. What if that could be true? We would call it Christianity. Yeah! We would call it good news. We would call it gospel news. We would say, we should preach this. We would say, we should herald this. We should tell everyone. How about we should tell this to the ends of the earth? That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Let's not mumble about sin. Know that there is hope if you are finding yourself a sinner in need of God's saving. Well, you know what? You turn to Christ. You turn to the cross by His grace. And if you are a Christian, join me in doing our very best, only by the grace of God, to not mumble about it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we 
will praise Him forever for being such a great and mighty and gracious Savior. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the extreme privilege that is mine. I don't take it for granted or lightly that I have this great opportunity to be able to be here this morning according to Your perfect sovereign plan and talking about this important matter that causes us to love You and respond to You and to seek the exaltation of Christ. On one level, God, as a church, help us to, out of love and truth, clearly articulate the gospel and stand for the gospel and promote the gospel. On another level, God, help us as Christians to essentially do the same thing out of a spirit of humility and kindness, Christ-likeness telling others how Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and unpacking what that means. And on a final level, God, for those who are here trusting in their own good works, God, may you be so kind and so gracious by the power of your Holy Spirit to help them to see that there, are, there is no such thing and that there would be repentance and trust in Christ as Savior the one who did the good work on behalf of sinners. For the glory of His name we pray. Amen.